0: We usually have an intro trailer, but wanted to jump right in on this exciting topic. Welcome to the God Culture, where we urge you to challenge tradition as First Thessalonians 5.21 tells us, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. We do not intend to be confrontational, but to compare what the Bible really says versus the traditions of men, which Jesus himself rebuked. Jesus said to the Pharisees, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. We are continuing our Solomon's Gold series today with a very appropriate topic. When was Jesus born? We call this Part 11b of our Solomon's Gold series because it goes along with Part 11, where we prove the wise men who actually really were kings, by the way, yep, check it out, part 11, came from Tarshish, Sheba, the Isles, which is Ophir and Seba. So, check out that video as we prove that topic out and it may surprise you just where those places are because we can know. Wait a minute. What kind of gall do we have claiming we can identify the very date Jesus was born. You will find our proofs very compelling and very well supported. By the way, we call Messiah, by his Hebrew name in this video, Yahusha, pronounced phonetically rather than Jesus, which is a transliteration three times removed. We're not criticizing anyone for using Jesus, and the name of God we use, which was replaced 7,000 times in modern translations, is YHWH in the Hebrew Bible, Yahuwah, which is God phonetically pronounced. Our purpose in producing these videos is to assist you in deepening your relationship with the Father and Son, which is why we find that important. If you pronounce their names differently, it's okay. We aren't criticizing anyone, even those who still use Jesus and Lord and God. Not going to get into that. As your relationship deepens, perhaps you too, like us, will decide to use and restore his actual name instead of replacements. But that is a decision only you can make. Warning, you are about to enter a well-supported, documented finding as to when Yahushua Jesus was born. And it will likely challenge what you currently may believe and will definitely challenge more modern tradition. But not the real tradition Because Luke and Matthew knew when their Savior was born. This video will confirm tradition. Oh, not December 25th. The real tradition. We are going to prove the year in this video that Yahushua Jesus was born, which is the foundation for proving the month and the day which we provide in the next video, Part 11c, for the sake of time. This isn't about who's right and who's wrong. It's about the truth, and you are here because you are seeking such. You don't have to agree with everything we conclude, but the evidence we use is difficult to ignore, difficult to dismiss, and very difficult to dispute. If we did not feel so, we would not even tackle this topic of massive significance especially. We assure you, we will care for this information, and you may even find yourself in agreement with our conclusion in the end. First, we are going to use the book of Luke as well as Matthew, but some may not know that Luke is not one of the original 12 disciples, which is fine. Even in Luke's Gospel, he's not listed there. St. Luke, obviously a Catholic reference, which will be extremely rare coming from us, but thought we'd use one. Flourished, 1st century CE AD. Feast day, October 18th. Well, not on any calendar we keep. In Christian tradition, the author of the Gospel... According to Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, we aren't making that case today, so just read on with us. A companion of St. Paul the Apostle and the most literary of the New Testament writers. Information about his life is scanty. Tradition based on references in the Pauline letters has regarded him as a physician and a Gentile. He probably accompanied Paul on several missionary journeys. Luke is first mentioned in the letters of Paul, as the latter's co-worker, and as the beloved physician. Now, this is from the Encyclopedia Britannica. FYI, we provide sources on each slide at the bottom. So, if you're viewing this on a cell phone, you might need to really look for it, maybe even blow the screen up, perhaps. We aren't assessing all of this reference, but gleaning the fact that Luke was a disciple of Paul, who either was a physician or had the gift of healing. Not our topic, though. And this calls him the most literary of the New Testament writers, a case we're not making necessarily, because that even puts him above Paul in literacy. And maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. Not our point. Our point is, he is literate. That's important. But we have to deal with this first because Luke's credibility has been undermined by skeptics disguised as scholars who don't bother to prove things out, but seize on fragments of information misunderstanding the Bible. Very deceptive, and we'll prove that. We are going to prove Luke was very accurate, and you'll see and hopefully agree. From Bible study manuals, Luke has proven himself to be a reliable historian, even in the details. Again, not what we are being told today, is it? Sir William Ramsey, archaeologist, has shown that in making reference to 32 countries, 54 cities, and 9 islands, he made no mistakes. See, Luke was pretty thorough, and we're going to prove he was very thorough, and you'll see. We are going to further prove that he also made no mistakes in telling us the conditions under which Yahusha Jesus was born, the topic of this video. He gives markers, and we are going to prove they are accurate. Can we do this? We'll give you the evidence and provide our conclusion. You decide. Luke 2 starts with, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. We've heard this many times this time of year, especially, right? In parentheses, note. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius Corinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city, another critical thing. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house in lineage of David. This could be problematic for Luke. This, the King James, which we usually use in our teachings, because it is the most widely accepted modern version, but... Not because we are part of any movement, because we don't do movements, nor are we starting one. <laughs> says Messiah was born while Caesar Augustus was emperor of the Roman Empire, which controlled that part of the world at that time. It also says there was an empire-wide census when it says all the world should be taxed, doesn't it? All the Roman world, of course, is what it's referring to, not parts that Rome wasn't even aware of, especially. This taxing, or census, was taken while Corinius was a leader in Syria, right? That's what it says. When you see how simple the solution is to this passage in understanding it, a light bulb is going to come on, so get ready. The census of Corinius was a census of Judea taken by Publius Sulpicius Corinius, Roman governor of Syria, upon the imposition of direct Roman rule in 6 CE. Hmm, okay. The author of the Gospel of Luke uses it as the narrative means to establish the birth of. Jesus, Yahusha. Luke 2, 1-5, through 5, which we covered. But Luke places the census within the reign of Herod the Great, who died 10 years earlier in 4 BC. That's what this reference says. We are going to deal with the date of Herod as well, so hang on. No satisfactory explanation of the contradiction seems possible on the basis of present knowledge. Well, Actually, we're going to show you. There is present, past, and future knowledge right there under our noses the whole time. It's always been right there. And most scholars think that the author of the gospel, Luke, made a mistake. Ah, Luke. Okay. Many have explored this to try to place Yahusha's birth in 6 AD at the time of the census of Quirinius. But all have found that date does not fit anything in history. This is where skeptics enter and they normally do. And some even say it proves the Messiah never came. No, don't think so. And we debate this in Christian circles back and forth and up and down and sideways. Stop debating and start researching, because the facts are right there. Notice this reference sets Herod's death at 4 BC. We'll clarify that as well. Let's put that aside for the moment. We will deal with it in this video. So the conclusion, Luke made a mistake, or whoever the author was, because if we don't have a videotape of him writing it and Zoom footage of at least a chapter of, of what he wrote, then by golly, we don't know who wrote it then, right? That is actually the logic of scholars if you break it down and really think about it, because that is what skeptics are saying. Except Luke says he wrote it in the text. That's called willing ignorance at its finest. See 2 Peter chapter 3. Those are his words, not ours. This is, and most all references to Corinius we can find in modern times, refers to his title as governor of Syria. And that is the word translators chose to place in Luke, in parentheses, notice, parentheses, highlighting that they knew something was wrong with this translation, leaving it for someone to fix in the future. Taking words in parentheses and using them as ammunition in your skepticism, is, frankly, disingenuous. We know you've probably heard parentheses means textual criticism. But does that, which modern debates are usually framed in such a way, does it truly express the humility of translators? Would they not be in all of the texts they are translating here? and operate from the assumption that the text is true and they can only hope and pray they will do justice to the text and their translations? Were they so pompous as to have that arrogant attitude that we see from skeptics? Of course, they would not have operated in that fashion. A true scholar never operates from the assumption that Luke didn't know what he was saying, especially not when they know Luke was very intelligent. So he probably knew what he was talking about, but we are having difficulty somewhere in the translation from language to language, which is reasonable. See, that's what this is, and we will prove it. Who was Corinnaeus? We have more context available to us than Luke's words, so let's explore. Strong's Concordance shows us the Greek word Luke used and says the Greek form of the Roman name Corinius. His full name is Publius Suplicius Corinius. He was Consul BC 12. Remember that that's huge, and was made governor of Syria after the banishment of Archelius, which is Herod's son, Herod Archelius, in AD 6. He was probably twice governor of Syria. They don't actually prove that, but we'll we'll read the reference. His first governorship extended from BC 4, the year of Christ's birth, they don't prove that here either, to BC 1. It was during this time that he was sent to make enrollment, which caused Quirinius and Mary to visit Bethlehem. Luke 2.2. See, they're using Luke to find this date. It's actually a circular reference. This is not scholarship, and unfortunately confuses people. But we're going to deal with this. We're going to lay this out. The second enrollment is mentioned in Acts 5.37. Now, it's critical that they do point out there are two enrollments here. One happened before, Just there before doesn't actually fit anything, and we'll prove that. So, this reference shows us Corinius was first consul of Syria. Notice that is not the title of governor, and that's prior to his being governor. That's not what Luke says, right? Well, we're going to go through that. This is crucial in understanding whether translators got this wrong and highlighted it because they were not sure. It then makes an assumption, not actually supported by history, but it's okay, we will show the inscription that they are using to support that argument, though they're not actually mentioning it because they're not telling us where they got it from. And a simple reading shows that's not what it says. First, did Corinius actually have the title of governor of Syria at any point? This is where the hair splitting skepticism really confuses this. A quick search on Wikipedia even shows that the Roman nomenclature for the leader of Syria in the time of Corinius was not governor. It was propraetorial imperial legates of Roman Syria. Now, you might say, that's splitting hairs, you know, that's still kind of a governor, so it is a governor. And that is not the same title as governor, though. And Luke uses a specific title that's being used against him, so we do need to get into the hair-splitting details that skeptics are using. This list shows Corinius as Praetorial Imperial Legate from 6 to 12 AD, not the title of governor. But again, remember that he progresses through the ranks in Syria, beginning with Consul in 12 AD. What exactly is a Consul anyway? A consul was the highest elected political office of the Roman Republic, and the consulship was considered the highest level of the cursus honorum, an ascending sequence of public offices to which politicians aspired. Notice, it is a sequence of public offices. So, they go through the order and they ascend one to the next to the next to the next. That's what Corinius did. Throughout the early years of the Principate, although the councils were still formally elected by the Comitia Centuriata, however you say that, they were, in fact, nominated by the precepts. By the time of Caesar Augustus, which is the time we're in, this was not a position elected by the people. Was this position somewhat different in the provinces, though, as Syria was? opposed to in Rome, because this sounds like it's talking about in Rome, we'll explain. Yes, outside the walls of Rome, the powers of the consuls were far more extensive in their role as commanders-in-chief of all Roman legions. It was in this function that the consuls were Vested with full imperium. When legions were ordered by a decree of the Senate, the consuls conducted the levy in the campus Martius. In this reference, you will find the provinces outside of Rome were treated differently as Rome housed the emperor who would minimize this role there, but needed to rely on them more heavily in the outlying areas, of course. But is this a governor? in title? No. And we'll prove that further as well as Luke knew that too, but the translators did not. Abuse of power by consuls was prevented with each consul given the power to veto his colleagues. Therefore, except in the provinces as commanders-in-chief, where's the provinces? Syria, Judea, those are all provinces. So, where each consul's power was supreme, in other words, it was only one consul and they had supreme powers, the consuls could only act not against each other's determined will. Again, back to Rome. So, the provinces were different and those consuls had supreme power within their jurisdiction. But, was this a governor in title? Not according to Rome, which is the source nor Luke, who understood this and will explain. Read further. After leaving office, the consuls were assigned by the Senate to a province to administer as governor. The provinces to which each consul was assigned were drawn by lot and determined before the end of his consulship. So, the position of consul was a stepping stone to the title of governor eventually. We saw Corinius in regards to Syria was first consul beginning in twelve BC and then praetorial legate in six to twelve AD. You will notice in that reference from Roman history there was no title of governor in Syria. It was the praetorial legate who ran things. So that is different in language. And again, they're splitting hairs over language here, so we have to get into these kind of details, unfortunately. But we're not done. So did Luke not know that Corinius never had the title of governor? Or was this an error by translators in which they highlighted it for someone to clarify in the future? We're not picking on translators here. What we're saying is they actually... We're very genuine in putting it in parentheses, even in the 1611 King James. You can go back and find it. We have a copy. We looked. It's there in parentheses still. So they put it there for it to be clarified in the future. Here's the Greek word Luke used for governor. In all of the Bible, Luke is the only one to use this word, and he uses it twice. The second reference completely explains this, and we're going to cover that. It's a general term for leader that could mean governor, but he didn't use governor. But one cannot assume that's the only meaning. Here's Luke's other use of the word translated both times, governor, but something's odd here. Luke 3.1 now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, we're going to prove that's 28 AD, Pontius Pilate being governor. Now, that word for governor is the very same Greek word that Luke uses only one other time in the Bible, and that's regarding Corinius. So, he's governor of Judea. Again, governor's a translation. Read on. And Herod being tetrarch. Of Galilee, now that's a different word. And his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea, and of the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanius, the tetrarch of Abilene. Wait a minute, wasn't Herod Antipas a governor, and his brother Philip and Lysanias as well? Was Luke confused that he would use one title for Pilate? and a different title for the other three within a tetrarchy, meaning of four? No. See, Luke is smart, and he's giving us a clue here that differentiates both Pilate and Corinnaeus as having a different title other than governor, and we're going to prove that. Look at the definition of tetrarch. It's used seven times in all of the Bible. Five are all references to Herod the Tetrarch, even in other Gospels. Remember, that's not the same as Herod the Great, who ruled at the time of Yahushua's, Jesus' birth, as his his title was king. But this is Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. And the above passage represents The other two times it was used. The other disciples also use this title, and it means to be a governor of a tetrarchy, be tetrarch of a region, leadership of four people, thus tetra. Now, check this out. If one has the title of governor in a Roman context, and it is shared in a province with a total of four governors, the correct title for all four, not three of four, for all four of those governors in this context would be tetrarch, not governor. Yes, tetrarch means governor, but governor split four ways, thus tetra. This is the only other time this term is ever used in the Bible, once for Corinius and then for Pontius Pilate. If Pontius Pilate wielded the actual title of governor, then he would be one of four and the correct title, and Luke would know this, Is why Luke is absolutely right, would be Tetrarch, not Governor. And remember, prior to this province being split into four governors, it didn't have a governor, but a king. The Greek word Basilius is used for Herod the Great as king, but not used in this era because it was now divided into a tetrarch of governorships. A tetrarchy. And if one of the four is not a tetrarch which is the term used for governor in this scenario, it is either a lesser or a greater title, like, for instance, king, which is used later in history concerning the king of Judea, but not in this context. How do we know this is true? Because Pontius Pilate was never a governor, even according to Roman records. He was a prefect, according to Roman records, which retained much of the same power, especially in the provinces, but was a lesser title than that of governor. Again, we are clarifying because Luke's credibility is being attacked over this. And we need to restore that so everyone watching this video can understand Luke's history is very accurate and not to be questioned here. The translators were even honest in placing their translation in parentheses for it to be fixed by someone later who could really identify the proper title based on the actual Greek word Luke chose to use for a reason. They did not quite understand in that time. We have all this information at our disposal today. Easy to find. So when a skeptic rips into a part of the Bible that is in parentheses or out of context, call them on it and make them prove it because no one ever legitimately proved Luke wrong because he is right and matches Matthew's account as the two are not at odds with each other. This shows the days we live in where evil is painted as good and good as evil. That mentality applied to Bible scholarship will lead to a lot of chaos and deception, and this has. You can trust the Bible, but prove it out as there are things like this that need to be understood better. This passage even places an exact day, the year 28 AD, on Luke's description, which later you will see is when Yehusha Jesus started his ministry, basically, and we'll touch on that too. Pilate retained the title of prefect during that period, not governor, which is why he was called governor, which in this context would be the title tetrarch, not governor anyway. So it's a translator error here. Did Luke err? No. Actually, what Luke did was provide the clue. That leads us to the exact birth date of Yahushua, Jesus, and we'll show you. Add to this, Matthew also refers to Pontius Pilate as what is translated as governor. But as you see from this definition, the word does not only mean governor. And if it was the exact title, it would be used by the Roman records, which is the real source of titles in the Roman Empire, rather prefect. But let us clarify. Hegemon, the word translated governor, is not governor. Thayer's Greek lexicon breaks it down in more detail. Again, Matthew uses tetrarch in referring to Herod the Great, so he knew that word and used it appropriately in chapter 14. So, he too shows a distinction between the title of Pilate and Herod as being different, uniquely. Herod, who was in the position over 30 years at that point as son of Herod the Great, clearly had the title Tetrarch, which is a governor in a province of four leaders. If Pilate was governor, the title represented by Matthew or Luke would have to be Tetrarch, not governor. And here we see it either means, one, it is a legate, which also would even fit Corinius in 6 AD, not governor, or two, a procurator. What's this? An officer who was attached to a proconsul. Now that's a governor. A proconsul, notice a procu- procurator is attached to a governor, but not a governor himself. But keep reading, it clarifies. Or a propraetor. And had charge of the imperial revenues. So you mean both Pontius Pilate and Corinius, who have the same title, according to Luke, were in charge of revenues as in taxes, as in "They are the position that would execute a census? Exactly. In causes relating to these revenues, he administered justice in the smaller provinces. Also, which were, so to speak, appendages of the greater. So these are the outlying provinces. He discharged the functions of governor. So he did have the authority of governor of the province. So he was not a governor in title, but did have the authority in the outlying areas of Rome. And such was the relation of the procurator of Judea to the proconsul of Syria. So of Pilate. Here's this reference. It comes right out and says, this is Pilate. So, even in the definition, it clarifies, Pilate was not a governor. He was a procurator. Specifically, as we showed you, he was a Roman prefect. And so was Corinius when he ordered the first census. Title was legate, or sorry, was council in that context, and that was an empire-wide census. Yes, we can and will prove that. Now, we are told that didn't happen in 6 AD when Corinius was governor. There was a census, but it was more local in nature. There are truths to that statement, but it mixes fact and fiction, and we'll show you. Why go through this exercise? Because in the end, this will tell us exactly what year Yehusha Jesus, was born, and both Matthew and Luke agree on this, and this is the number one thing that is going to come up in comments as trying to debunk this video, and it doesn't debunk anything. This proves it. We've just lost it over the years, as the major churches have really dropped the ball and allowed hollow arguments in because we don't know the Bible. The largest point, Yahusha Jesus, was real, and so is his word, and to be taken seriously, not picked apart by Gnostic skeptics, which they normally are, who don't even know the Bible. So the question is, would Corinius have conducted the census in his terms as consul? Well, those powers are included in the definition of consul. So if there was an empire-wide census, as stated in Luke, then it could have happened during that period. Because the only one he conducted in 6 AD was not empire-wide, we'll show you that, which skeptics seize on immediately, and they're right about that. But they confuse the title and the year. Let's explain this just a little further, and this will become very clear, and the year will reveal itself. It is a commonly held assumption that the decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world was to be taxed was a single census, a single event in the entire Roman Empire. Actually, we're going to prove it was. The question is, is this how Luke understood it or intended to be understood? Very likely not. Well, can you prove it? Need to prove it. This part we don't agree with. It is not necessary to dismiss Luke's actual words as he says all were to be taxed demonstrating an empire-wide census, not a local one, because it was. And we will prove that. These guys don't, but that's okay. Uh, we're gleaning some things from this that are very useful. According to Honor. what is meant is that censuses were taken at different times in different provinces. Well, that could be true as well, but that's not what the Bible says in this account, does it? Augustus being the see, they're setting themselves up for skeptics to pick them apart. And I, I don't know whether this is in purpose or not. We don't know this guy, Honor, but let's read further. Augustus being the first one in history to order a census or tax assessment of the whole provincial empire. That is not historically proven either, and we'll show you. But we want to show you this because these are the kinds of arguments that are out there, and they're paper arguments almost formed in a way that are intended, not necessarily by this scholar, but intended ultimately from the top to be a paper argument. This is further substantiated by the fact that Luke uses the present tense indicating that Augustus ordered censuses to be taken regularly, we'd agree with that, rather than only one time. We would agree with that. Again, this article is missing that Corinius never held the title governor at all, and it's the wrong translation. It also misses he was consul from 12 B.C., And we do not have an historical establishment of when that ended. We glean from this that censuses in the Roman era were taken regularly, and we're going to expound on that. And this is verified by history, which we will show you, but this next part starts to really nail it down for us. New Testament historian Jack Finnegan says, As to the taking of such an enrollment in general, it is known from discoveries among the Egyptian papyri that a Roman census was taken in Egypt and therefore perhaps also throughout the empire regularly, every 14 years. Many actual census returns have been found and they use the very same word, which Luke two uses For the enrollment. So, Egyptian papyri, which is in the same region as Israel, Egypt and Israel, confirms in many documents that the Roman census was executed every 14 years in that area. So, can this be as easy as taking the 6 AD number, which was a local census? not the worldwide, and go back 14 years to find Messiah's birth. Of course, this has been so confused that we must confirm this to be the case, and we will. This is awesome, but let's go right to the source who conducted these censuses, Rome. So, let's see what the Roman records say, because they would know. Archaeologist Sir William Ramsey discovered an inscription in the area of Syria on which a knight, Amelius Secondus, carved his story called Titulus Venetus. It was on Greek marble and describes a census in Syria in which he conducted a portion for Corinius. The Latin is to the left and translation in English to the right. We blew this up so you can read it for yourself. He identifies that he served under Corinius, who at the time of his engraving, he uses Corinius's proper title in which he progressed of Legate, which is proper. He would not have used his former title of Consul because when he carved this, Corinius had been promoted and out of respect, this knight would reflect that title. But it does not date this as there are events on this writing that do he says by order of corinius i made the census in apamea of citizens male 117000 note they only counted males in these censuses in those days which is why joseph only was ordered to return to his family's place of origin in bethlehem but mary had no such order he took her with him for obvious reason. He was going to care for her and the Messiah she carried. Would you have done any different? But here's where we get the date because he is obviously writing this in chronological order as a Roman military-trained citizen would, as this is his record. Besides, sent on mission by Corineus against the Iturians. On Mount Lebanon, I took their citadel. The thing is, history records this event occurring around five to four BC and during Herod's reign as well. This means Corinius did, in fact, conduct a census during his reign as consul, which started in 12 BC. So it occurred sometime bet- between 12 BC and, as this dates, it happened before 5, at least 5 or 4 BC. According to this history, this carving on the Titulus Venetus. Are we the only ones to see this? No. Further evidence in his Cursus Honorum, additional writing, the Knight Secondus, same guy, details his career, describing his distinctions obtained in chronological order. The inventory referred to his inscription performed under the orders of Corinius is not the one made in the year 6 CE AD, which was due to the removal of King Archelius. Important to know that census was for that reason very critical because transfers of power determine many census dates and we'll prove that out and was confined to Judea, so that one was a local one in 6 CE, not even Syria. The Jewish Encyclopedia, we won't take you there, but look it up, actually cites there was a rebellion during that time in 6 AD or CE, whichever you refer to it as, in which a guy named Judas led a rebellion in Judea. Second, the census of the city of Apamea in Syria, which was a registration, was followed by the mission in Aeturia. Now, the citadel of the Iturians was taken before, not after, Herod's death, as indicated by Strabo and Josephus. So the census occurred under Corinius' reign in B.C. as consul not A.D. as legate, Luke was right not to use the term for governor, wasn't he? Let's go to Josephus though and clear this up even further. Josephus states the Corineus had been sent to Syria as supreme judge of people and censor of properties. What's that? One in charge of the census. This office, one of the highest magistracies granted to a consul, was usually entrusted to men chosen among the senatorial elite and close to the emperor. Corinius came to deal with the financial affairs and court civil courts, the military commander of Judea being entrusted to Caponius. Josephus is talking about a larger census here a greater importance than the one in 6 A.D., which we are proving was the second census, not the first. We're not done yet. So, once again, Luke is right when he identifies the first census of Corinius, and he even says first, which was not 6 A.D., but in B.C., when he was consul which was an appropriate function of his office which josephus is basically describing here by duties listed not necessarily governor but josephus does mention corinius again according to josephus corinius was governor of syria with authority over judea in 6 ad ad 6 when the province was brought under direct Roman control. Remember, Josephus also did not write in English, so this too is translated with the word governor. That is not the word he used, but we're not going to go into all of that. This refers to when Corinius became legate of Syria, which Josephus would have known as well as Luke. But before he was describing a different event. Even the historian Tacitus weighs in on Corinius, an indefatigable soldier. What a word. He had by his zealous services won the consulship under the divine Augustus 12 BCE. There it is again. And subsequently, the honors of a triumph for having stormed some fortresses of the Hamananadises Cilicia, however you say that. He was also appointed advisor to Caius, then at Rhodes. So, this isn't just a little bit of support. This is overwhelming. But the next piece of history brings it all together. Whose census was this? The emperor's, ultimately. Caesar Augustus. So is there historical support that Caesar Augustus actually ordered an empire-wide census? Actually, yes. Have you heard from skeptics that the Roman Empire did not take an empire-wide census during that time? Yeah, us too. Just watch the History Channel this very week, in fact. But is it true? No. Here's a chart from CSUN.eu with sources below. We blew up the portion in the time frame we need, but it's all there on the screen, so you can pause and blow it up and actually look at it all. We labeled each of the three lines with more specific sources as well, so this is clear. These are the census figures released after the returns were all in and processed by Rome. This means the actual censuses in their respective provinces had to have taken place about a year or so earlier because these are the final figures after the process was complete and they are reporting them. Luke 2:1 says that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed, all of the Roman world. Does this tie? Four million plus in each of these three census years reported. But four million what? Men. Remember, even Luke confirms that, but so did the night Secondus that we covered. Would that number not represent the total empire figures, not just a local census? Of course it would. And what are the years? 28 BC is the first, perhaps within the time frame, in which is referred to by Luke and Matthew. Now, from the characters in Luke and Matthew, and the other Gospels, that year could not possibly be near the birth of Yahusha, Jesus, for one, because Pontius Pilate would not have been in office yet at the time of Yahusha's sentencing and the judgment and his execution, and his resurrection, for that matter. But even better... Guess how precise the Bible is. When Luke refers to a census and Matthew to Caesar Augustus being in power, Luke did not err. Augustus did not take power until a year after this census was reported, meaning that was obvious, An empire-wide census before the transition of power as an accounting of what Augustus was receiving in responsibility. A perfect time for a census to take place because Augustus took power one year later in 27 BC. See, this makes sense. On the other end, Let's look at the third one listed here, 14 AD. Why is that significant? Well, that's the year. That, Caesar Augustus, ended his reign. So what was that? It was another census accounting for the transition of power, an empire-wide one, just as the one in 28 BC, Those had to be empire-wide because both were a transfer of power of an emperor, thus the entire empire. So, what was that? Another census accounting for the transition of power. Then, there's only one other listed during the entire reign of Caesar Augustus. Only one! Not even two, Not even a choice here. Again, empire-wide audit or census. There were other censuses that took place. We saw every 14 years. Those were regional, local. We're talking empire-wide. So here you go, 8 BC. There's no other census in between, is there? It would be the first census under Caesar Augustus. Why? Well, because the one in 28 BC occurred the year before Caesar Augustus. Thus, didn't happen under his decree. 8 BC is the first one to be decreed by Caesar Augustus. And it was empire-wide, according to Roman records you're seeing right here. It was conducted by Corinius in his role as consul of Syria, where he had such authorities. It is the infamous census of Quirinius in Luke's words, but it didn't happen in 8 BC, it was reported in 8 BC, meaning it happened a year prior. What else do we know? The Egyptian papyri confirmed that census took place in that portion of the empire every 14 years. Is this consistent? 6 AD is well documented as a local census for Judea, in which there was a revolt further confirming such, and that coming from the Jewish Encyclopedia and many other references. Count back 14 years, and what year does one arrive at? Well, let's count it together so there's no confusion, but we'll tell you ahead of time, it's 8 BC. Because we're shifting AD to BC here, we want to be clear, so we'll count it together. But first, one last support. Greenfeld and Hunt, archaeologists who discovered the Oxyrhynchus papyri in Egypt in 1903, this is the one that's being referenced in the former references we used, we wanted to be clear on this, approached the problem of the beginning of the Roman census when they noticed a 14-year periodicity In the pattern of survival of the census returns, their conclusion was that a cycle of censuses took place every 14 years starting from 10-9 BC. We're going to prove it's actually 9. Now, we count and see how this makes sense. We've established Quirinius did oversee a census in 6 AD, a local census, due to the transition of local power because it's the date Herod Archelius was removed from power in just Judea by Caesar Augustus himself, which is why it is not on the Roman chart we just showed because that represented empire-wide censuses. And why, as well, this gives the reason this took place. Now, there is no year 0 AD or BC in counting years in history. So let's count. 5 AD would be 1, and we numbered all the way back. The year in which Messiah was born was 9 BC. Did we prove it? We believe so, but we're not done because we have to deal with a couple of things because this has been so messed up in the scholarship arena. Matthew also states Yahusha, Jesus, was born in the days of Herod. But which Herod? Because there is more than one. We have to go back to Luke, who really is the expert on detail. Luke 5, there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abia, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Those were John the Baptist's parents. We will break this first down, including proving out the actual course of Abia, which will confirm all of our findings in the next video. For now, which Herod is he talking about? The first Herod was Herod the Great, and he had the title of king. After he died, the province was split between four governors, which means they were not governors, they were what? Tetrarchs, rather than just one. We covered that already, but one that did not come up was the son of Herod, who ruled Judea after him, Herod Archelius. We will prove when this transition of power happened, as this is used in a great number of theories that you will find out there. And most leave out a lot of details to get there. So, we feel we must know this piece, though it is not necessary in our position, which we already proved without even addressing Herod. But, the first comments we will receive will go right to this point, if we do not address it. Thus, we will verse 14:15 When he, Joseph, arose, he took the child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt and was there until the death of Herod. So this is certainly a timestamp, but really confirms what we already know. Herod the Great died sometime after Yehusha Jesus was born. If it was 1 BC instead of 4 BC, Again, it doesn't actually affect our findings, but since this is used so often to try to prove Stellarium software especially, which we're not going to address at the moment, we're going to vet this for just a moment, and then let's look at verse 22. But when he heard, again, Joseph, that Archelius, no titles given, did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither. This confirms Herod the Great was king, and his son Herod Archelius became just leader of Judea, which later we see others took possession of the other areas, which is also evidenced by the fact That Joseph takes Mary and Messiah to Galilee, meaning Archelius did not govern Galilee. See? It's all there. Luke is very specific, and he nails this, and he's criticized as if he didn't know what he was talking about. It's amazing. So that transition of power occurred after Yahushua, Jesus, was born. So let's prove when. Also regarding Herod, we know the wise kings, again see part 11 for proof they were actually kings. Scholars are wrong when they say they weren't. They were kings. Not three, though. The song is wrong. But we also talk about the guy who wrote the song, and guess what? He wrote another song that tells us where they came from. Now, watch that video. Matthew 2, 7, the kings visit Herod and he specifically asked when Messiah might have been born, so they told him. And verse 16 says that Herod got angry when they left without checking in with him, as he requested. He moved to slay the children not only in Bethlehem, but the coast as well. Nice guy. The telling part of this passage is they were two years of age and under the children that he killed. That was the approximate age of Yahushua Jesus at that time. So he was born two years, at least two years before Herod's death. The thing is, this is only a marker but does not identify the date, but it does have to fit within the timeline, as everything else does thus far. And so does this will prove. So we know Yahushua Jesus was born at least two years earlier prior to the death of Herod. But when did Herod live, reign, and die? FYI, in the background is a photo of Herod's tomb that was found. Herod died in Jericho from the work of Emel Schur in 1896 and others. Scholars believe Herod died from 4 BC to 1 CE. So they narrow it down to a five-year period, but we can do better. Evidence is provided by the fact that Herod's sons between whom his kingdom was divided, either dated or anti backdated, their rule, from 4 BC now understand if herod's sons backdated their reigns rome would have to had approved such and been in on such a conspiracy what's missing from this rationale is actual evidence other than an astrological software program called Stellarium which supposedly pinpoints the alignment of just the right stars telling us when Yahusha Jesus was born. Of course, the problem with Stellarium software in this instance especially and we have issues with it in many others, but in this particular one is it has to match history first before even looking at the software, and the star needs to match the story. In part 11, we three kings, (laughs) yes, we know there are actually six plus, which we prove, watch it, because even the writer of that song knew quite a bit more than we've been told. But better yet, the star of Bethlehem is recorded as traveling in three different directions in the course of approximately a couple of hours or so at what star does that or even can do that that is not the course of a star whether or alone the alignment of several stars it's ludicrous there's no possible way that could fit a star pattern because it's an angel angels are interchangeable with stars in the bible you see that in revelation the stars that Yahusha's holding in his hands, where he says the stars are angels. So, in all fairness to Stellarium software, in this instance, it can't even find such a star pattern because that wasn't included in the astrology that they're using yes they use astrology not just astronomy and you need to look into that a little further but we're not going to address that today and archelius apparently also exercised royal authority during Herod's lifetime we're back to the the reference here now we're going to address that josephus stated that philip the tetrarch's death took place after a 37 year reign in the 20th year of tiberius this says 34, CE, AD, FYI, their math is wrong. And the reason is is they don't understand that the first year are the first months. The whole first year happens from the first month to the 12th month. The anniversary, the first anniversary occurs at that point, and then the second year starts. So, it's just a a minor uh, faux pas, uh, which is fine. We won't pick on them for that, but they're wrong, and the date is off by a year. So, some scholars support the traditional date of 1 BCE. Filmer and Steinman, in particular, have thought that Herod was named king by the Roman Senate in 39 BCE. Notice, they thought. But did they prove it? No, they didn't prove it. But he died in 1 BCE, and Herod's heirs backdated their reigns to 4 or 3 BCE. Again, still missing. And it is, if you go read this in more detail, the reason what Would all three sons, with Rome's support, so also involving the emperor and his staff, why would they support backdating the three reigns, because it's three different governors here, or tetrarchs really, three whole years for what reason? Everyone knew better, so why would they bother? And who would want to own Herod the Great's years in record? Let him have his years, and we'll start our own, which is the exact tone that Archelius took when he was appointed. Don't worry, we're going to prove this out with even stronger evidence. Just starting. Josephus tells us that Herod died after a lunar eclipse. He gives an account of events between this eclipse and his death, and between his death and Passover. So understand the progression. There's a lunar eclipse, Herod dies, and then Passover occurs. That's the progression. An eclipse took place on March 13, 4 BC. We're going to confirm that. We're going to take you to NASA about 29 days before Passover. We're also going to confirm the date of Passover, because I'm not sure if they know what it was that year. And this eclipse has been suggested as the one referred to by Josephus. There were, however, other eclipses during this period, and there are proponents of 5 BC and the two eclipses of 1 BC. What are they? And why doesn't this reference mention them? Rather funny. And when you see what actually occurred in those years, it's it's largely laughable that they would write the reference like this. So the eclipse first, then Herod dies, then Passover. We can work with this. This is an article on Wikipedia, so let's confirm these dates and eclipses. And oddly, there's no mention of what dates the eclipses occurred in 1 B.C., if you're going to write an article for Wikipedia, maybe go and just add that little extra bit of research so you don't look foolish. We think you'll understand what we mean as soon as you see what NASA has to say. First, let's eliminate one that doesn't make any sense in which the article says an eclipse occurred in 5 B.C., They didn't bother to look this up because in 5 BC, Passover was on March 21st and the eclipse happened almost two weeks after Passover. Which doesn't fit because again, the progression is the eclipse first, then Herod dies, then Passover. So Passover happens after the eclipse, not before. So this one, the writer of that article could have just canceled out. 4 BC was March 23rd, not the 13th, which the article refers to, but okay, close enough. It's about two weeks before Passover that year. And we'd have to say is an exact match to the criteria that Josephus sets forth. But 1 BC is a stretch. First, it mentions two eclipses in the article within the time frame. No, that's not true. It didn't bother to check the dates, and that's rather disingenuous. No wonder folks get confused about these things. Obviously, July is way after Passover in any year. But January 20th, in relation to Passover being April 10th that year, in fact, maybe... But doubtful, especially not in the face of all the other evidences. The lunar eclipse does not conclusively prove anything, frankly, as they cancel each other. But, more likely, this is 4 BC, not 1 BC. And it's definitely not 5 BC. But, we took you through this exercise in order to demonstrate how deceptive some of these posts can be, which is why we must prove all things. More so because this is not all Josephus has to say on the matter, and this will be further clarified. Now, this is the same article we shared earlier. After misleading regarding to the date, really talking in circles as many scholars do, unfortunately, it tells us, with this explicit background given, Josephus began an exposition of the days of Archelius' reign before Passover of 4 B.C. Wait, what happened before Passover in 4 B.C.? Herod died, and Archelius took over power. But keep reading, because we don't want you questioning. Archelius dressed in white and ascended a golden throne and appeared to be kind to the populace in Jerusalem in order to appease their desires for lower taxes and an end to the political imprisonment of Herod's enemies. Again, would he really need to backdate his reign taking credit for Herod's created problems, which he already had to clean up? So, he could add three years to his resume when everyone in that era knew better? No, it doesn't make sense. Archelius quickly sailed to Caesar and faced a group of enemies, his own family. Antipater, the brother of Archelius, Herod Antipater, who was deposed from Herod's will days earlier, earlier before Herod died, argued that Archelius merely feigned, faked, Grief for his father, crying during the day, and involving with great merriment during the nights. Wait a minute. We are sure that was probably true. <laughs> but, the point is, this happened in 4 B.C., before Passover. And what was Archelius recorded as doing? Mourning the loss of his father, Herod the Great, who was dead. There is no room for 1 B.C. here. But even if it was, and we are very confident this proves it out that it was not, it still has no bearing on our research, but it certainly appears 4 B.C. is the date that Herod died, and there is no evidence to overturn that, with these newfangled theories about 1 BC based on Stellarium software, which can't even find that star because it was an angel following a pattern that stars can't possibly follow. Let's look at this progression on a chart so it's completely abundantly clear. Caesar Augustus reigned from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. Empire-wide census figures were released in 28 A.D., one year before his reign, and the final year of his reign in 14 A.D. Only one other empire-wide census, which we showed you, is recorded, and that's Quirinius' census. Herod the Great reigned from 39 B.C., to 4 B.C., which we have now indisputably proven. Corinius was named Consul in 12 B.C. If you look up Consul, you will find in Rome that was a one-year term. Don't bother sending comments about that, because you didn't read far enough. If you stop there, keep reading. But in the provinces, this was not the case. We showed you this as well, but... When you're reading, make sure you're reading in context. The rules were different in the provinces which we showed. We prove Messiah and John were conceived in 10 BC. However, we are going to further prove that out completely in the next video. So don't comment on this point yet because you don't know all the facts. It's, it takes more dismantling in this case. So, But we are. We will for sure. And you'll love this. Messiah was born in 9 BC at the time of the Empire-Wide Census of Quirinius, which is the only other Empire-Wide Census in this period mentioned, other than at the transfer of power on the final year of... That Augustus was emperor in 14 AD, which wouldn't fit any timelines uh, because you wouldn't have Pilate as governor. All of you know most of the things listed in several of the accounts would not fit. So we know this to be the case. And Roman statistics report the results of the 9 BC census. In 8 BC, for the entire empire, over 4 million males reported. This is consistent. This means in 7 BC, the wise men came to visit Yahusha, who was about 2 years old at the time. Which is why Herod killed 2 year olds and younger, just in case they weren't telling him the truth. What a guy! 4 BC, Herod dies, and we prove that, and his sons ascend the throne. Quirinius becomes legate, which is equated to governor much closer than consul of Syria and conducts a second census, but this time it is not an empire-wide census, according to the Titulus Venetus. Roman census records as it's not listed, meaning it was not empire-wide, and history included Josephus. Um, So, using this chart, while we have it out, let's project a little further what this means in relation to Yahusha's timeline a little later. These are approximate, and we are not proving them out in this video, but merely applying the 9 B.C. date of birth for Yehusha Messiah and matching it to the events. The 15th year of Tiberius Caesar is 28 A.D. This is approximately when Yehusha Jesus began his ministry, and he was 36 years old. Yes, we'll explain the traditional Position of 30 years old exactly uh, real quick after this slide. This would mean Yahushua Jesus was crucified approximately 31 AD at 39 years of age. The book of John mentions three Passovers, thus three years, but again, we're not proving this out completely in this video. See, these things require a lot more time and effort than a quick debate ever gives them. So, we're not entering a debate with that. We're just saying, if this is true, we're not proving it out, then this is the case. So, we call it Approximate. We know we will get this point in comments, so let's deal with it here in the video. Luke 3.23, and Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, which was the son of Eli, Eli. The word began means began, admittedly, which is fine, but notice Luke is ballparking here by saying he was about 30 years of age, likely meaning he was in his 30s. 36, which we identified, is certainly in his 30s. But we offer one more slide with a couple of sensible commentaries on this, so it is completely clarified. Or Jesus when he was baptized and began his public ministry, was about 30 years of age. The word began is left out in the Syriac and Persic versions and is often indeed redundant as in Luke 3.8 and frequently in Mark's Gospel. The Arabic version renders it Jesus began to enter into the 30th year Now, you look at that and you say Oh, then he was becoming 30 years of age However, what if it's actually regarding 30 A.D., which it well could be See, these are things that we don't necessarily know But skeptics seize on as exact facts And they're really twisting things in this instance as well Here's another commentary. Was about 30 years of age when he began his ministry. Makes better Greek. Read that again. Was about 30 years of age when he began his ministry. That makes sense. So it makes better Greek and is probably the true sense. At this age, the priests entered on their office at the age of about 30 years old. And by the way, there's no reference whatsoever in the Bible that says a Levite priest becomes a Levite priest at exactly the age of 30 in all instances. It doesn't say that. So this verse is not saying he was exactly 30 years old, but it is a ballpark, which is fine. Thus, he was about 30 years old, and again, it all fits together within him being born in 9 B.C. So, Yahusha, Jesus was born in 9 BC, but now we have the finding we need to prove the month and the day he was born, and this is going to blow you away. Wait till you see when and how this all ties together. We have our next video pretty much produced at this point, Part 11C, and it should be coming right on the heels of this video, with the day and month, all ready. And it will upload soon. You are not going to want to miss this. We thank you for watching our Solomon's Gold series. Make sure you are notified by YouTube as we upload new videos by clicking the subscribe button below this video and be sure to click the bell as well. That's important. Share this with others and check out our website at thegodculture.com. If you enjoyed this teaching, check out our other videos where we find the garden of Eden. Oh yes, we do. The home of Adam and Eve. You better believe it. The rivers of Eden Ophir, Tarshish, Sheba, Jonah's journey corrected. Where Noah's Ark landed, yep, and it was in Turkey. Where John the Baptist lived and operated. And so much more, all from biblical sources expounded with historical references, science, archaeology, language, geography, and more. Always remember to prove all things for yourself. Yahuwah God bless. Thank mm-hmm. you.